You are listening to Will's EL Experience. I talk about books and bike mechanics so that I can graduate. In this episode, we will be discussing Scott Zamek's book, One More Horizon, the inspiring story of one man's solo journey around the world on a bicycle, highlighting the main plot points and mechanical issues he encountered along the way. We will discuss how his own ingenuity and the assistance of others helped him complete his journey from Norway to Hong Kong and how this relates to my experience working as a mechanic in a bike shop. Working as a mechanic gives you experience applying skills to real-world experiences, such as problem-solving, creative thinking, and repeating monotonous tasks over and over again. These skills are applicable to a host of other things, including schoolwork and recreation. And now, on to Scott Zamek's book, One More Horizon. Scott started his journey in the Midwest of the United States, searching for supplies and monetary support for his adventure. After being turned away from any source of funding he sought out, he set off to Norway with a dilapidated bike and little to no money, planning to survive off of a budget of only $5 per day. Starting in Norway, he made his way down Western Europe until he made it to Belgium, where he crossed into the UK. There, he was turned around by a notable mountain bike publication who also did not believe in his journey. Continuing from England into France and then Spain, he took the ferry to Morocco and crossed the Sahara Desert in the middle of summer. While this was certainly not a great idea, he was actually following the footsteps of another cyclist also accomplishing the same route just a few days in front of him. At almost every stop, other people would ask if he was participating in a race and that he was already a couple days behind the other contestant. Finally catching up with the other cyclist on the ferry crossing to Italy, Scott and the other man shared stories and tips on the struggles of commuting across the Sahara Desert in the middle of the summer. Once in Italy, Scott made his way to Greece. However, one of the major setbacks of his trip occurred there. His bike was stolen and he had to hitchhike the remainder of his way where he stayed with another cyclist who he met who offered the American help in his time of need. After staying with the other cyclist for two weeks, spent bargaining in Greek markets for new camping gear, bicycle, and clothing, Scott set off through the mountains into Turkey. Cycling through Turkey, nothing particularly remarkable occurred to Scott until he was in the mountainous eastern region of the country. As it was quite late in the year at this point, winter was in full effect, and he was forced to take shelter in a hotel where he met the only doctor of the region, The doctor nursed Scott back to health with the assistance of the hotel owner, and after that, Scott had a fairly uneventful trip to the Syrian border. In Syria, Scott was amazed by the friendliness of the citizens of the country who were always going out of their way to assist him in any way possible. On his last night in Syria, he pulled off of the main road and walked into the woods a couple hundred meters before pitching his tent to sleep for the night. At some point in the morning, he was seized from his tent by four men and dragged out into the street with his bicycle and the contents of his baggage ripped open and searched. 
he fled from his captors and was helped by a passing van. Once inside, he learned that the men who had grabbed him and the people driving the van that he was now in worked for the Syrian government and that he was being escorted to a military prison. The only solace Scott could find in his situation was that by some miracle, the man sitting next to him in the back of the van happened to be one of Syria's top judges who said that he would protect Scott from the military regime who would hold him trial. Without his knowledge, Scott had stumbled across a military facility in the woods and set up camp within its boundaries. The military police who dragged him out of his tent believed he was an American spy, and after finding a camera and journal in his bag, became even more suspicious. Once Scott had been deposited in prison, the military police developed the film from his camera, and it was clear that he was a tourist and not a spy. Still, they were not pleased that he had been camping on a military compound's property, and so he was still held trial. To his word, the judge Scott had met defended him, and with his help, Scott was deemed innocent. The judge told Scott that while he had indeed been proven not to be a spy, he should go with all haste to the Jordan border a couple kilometers down the road, as the military police would likely seek revenge on him as soon as he was out of the judge's protection. Once released from prison, Scott headed to the Jordanian border with all haste. However, his progress was hindered because the military police had slashed the tires on his bicycle. Once in Jordan, Scott went to the Pakistani embassy where he hoped to secure a visa to go into the country. After several days of waiting in line repeatedly and then being turned away, Scott made it to an official. They told him that as an American citizen, he did not require a visa to enter Pakistan and that if he simply took a flight there, he would arrive and be given a visa on site. Frustrated that he had spent multiple days to receive this information, Scott was happy that it would be a relatively easy process for him to enter Pakistan. Those familiar with world geography will know that Pakistan and Jordan do not share a border. In fact, they don't even share a sea border. The reason Scott could not cycle from Jordan to Pakistan is that the Middle East sits in between them. None of the visa officials who Scott sought help from thought that it would be a good idea for Scott to cycle through this area and he was unable to secure a visa from any country in between Jordan and Pakistan. As such, he got on a plane and flew to Pakistan, hoping to secure a visa there, as the official at the Pakistani embassy had told him. Arriving in Pakistan, Scott was directed to the immigration office at the airport. To get there, he walked through an empty room where 20 plus individuals of nationalities from all over the world sat on the floor, camped out with whatever luggage they had with them. He walked up to an official sitting behind a window and explained how he had been told by the Pakistani official in Jordan that as he was an American citizen, he did not need a visa before he entered the country. The official behind the window said that that was incorrect and that Scott was lying to him as an employee of the Pakistani government would never tell him that. He told Scott that he would figure it out for him he should go sit down. Over the next several days, Scott worked his way through international limbo and eventually managed to bribe an official to get to a phone. However, once he got there, he realized he didn't know the phone number of the U.S. Embassy and so he was unable to accomplish anything. After several more days of bribing officials and security guards and janitors, 
Scott was able to also secure the phone number to the U.S. Embassy and on his next journey to the phone, was able to get hold of a U.S. official. Within 20 minutes, the immigration's office was full of American military and government officials. As he was whisked away, he promised to aid those that were still stuck in the room whose governments were not as influential. After this fiasco, the Pakistani government put Scott up in the nicest hotel in town and he stayed there for free and ate and drank with the American embassy members. They pulled some strings and secured him an Indian visa and he was put on the next flight to India along with his bike, camping gear and other baggage. Landing in Bombay, Scott spent the next several days searching for maps and other information that he would need to cycle across the country. Setting off from the crowded city, he was soon in remote rural areas where he would go through a town every several days. Passing through remote villages, Scott was the main source of entertainment, and he was often surrounded by tens to hundreds of locals, surprised and amazed by this strange man traveling on a bicycle that they had never seen before. The cuisines in the areas he traveled were quite limited, and he grew sick of the traditional dal and rice, a Play-Doh textured substance that ranged in flavor from spicy to sweet. After several weeks of travel in this manner, Scott made his way to the northeastern section of the country, deep into the mountainous jungles. His map of the area indicated that this was a Bengal tiger reserve, although he didn't consider that this would mean that tigers roamed out in the open, thinking that this would resemble something that would occur in the States, such as a fenced-off enclosure where people could go enjoy the sights of tigers. After two weeks of travel in this region, he was awoken one night by a terrifying scream just outside his tent. A large creature crashed through the undergrowth, and he was unable to sleep for the rest of the night. The next day, he stumbled upon a camp in the middle of the woods. This was a place for tourists to come, enjoy local cuisine, and go on guided jeep tours to see tigers in their natural habitat. Scott negotiated a nightly price and stayed there for three days, rejuvenating and eating and repairing his bicycle. The only people currently residing at this camp were the employees. After Scott's three days were up, he had become friends with them, and they offered to let him stay there for another month for free if he drove the jeep for tourist groups. As Scott had been looking for a place to take a break from his travels, he agreed and lived with them for the next month, staying longer and becoming good friends with them. He would end up spending close to eight weeks there, guiding tourists and seeing tigers almost every day. After eight weeks at the jungle camp, Scott became restless and decided to continue his journey. His next step was cycling across China from west to east, ending at Hong Kong. The problem he currently faced was that crossing from India into China was extremely difficult because of the nature of the terrain that separated the two countries. In between them was the Tibetan Plateau, and as it was late in the year, crossing that on a bicycle would be impossible. So, against all odds, Scott decided to return to Pakistan, this time securing the requisite visa before he entered the country. After securing the visa, he cycled through northern Pakistan and ended up in a remote mountain town near the Chinese border. There, he was told that the road over the pass was closed for the season, but he pushed on nonetheless. Close to the summit of the pass, Scott was found by Pakistani border officials 
and was taken to a nearby encampment to shelter from an oncoming blizzard. They had seen Scott ride by the day before and decided to go find him, as if he stayed out in the open, he would die from exposure in a matter of hours. Once the storm had passed, Scott hopped back on his bicycle and unfortunately had to recover a lot of the elevation that he had spent multiple days gaining. The conditions of the road were, however, better, and so he made faster progress. Once he summited the pass, he faced a 40-kilometer descent to the Chinese border crossing. The problem with this was that if he for some reason got turned around, he would have to do a 40-kilometer climb back before he could get into Pakistan, and he did not have enough supplies to last him that much time. Luckily, he reached the border with no drama, and they let him in. However, they stated that at the next checkpoint, he would have to get onto a bus and would not be allowed to cycle for the remainder of his journey. Out of distrust, the Chinese government sought to restrict the access tourists had to their country and outlawed travel by bicycle. The next checkpoint was situated near a tourist attraction, and as such, there was a mixture of Western tourists and Pakistanis making their way into China for trade. After some observation, Scott realized that the Pakistanis were let in with very little trouble, whereas the Western tourists were searched and faced much more scrutiny from the border officials. As he had been traveling by bicycle for many months, his skin was tan and he was covered in dirt and looked very similar to most of the Pakistanis. Knowing enough Pakistani words to pass by a Chinese border guard who did not speak the language, Scott got into the Pakistani line and was able to slide through with his bicycle, and continued his journey, not on a tour bus. Continuing east across the country, Scott's greatest challenge was crossing the great deserts of central China. There were hundreds of kilometers in between towns, and carrying enough food and water was nearly impossible. Scott was forced to flag down passing vehicles and then beg for food and water so that he did not die. Once Scott had passed into eastern China, he stopped at a tourist town, where there were plenty of Westerners to mingle with and talk to. He hoped to recover from his strenuous travel across the desert, although he grew weaker and weaker as the days went on. He was soon diagnosed with hepatitis and had to spend multiple weeks bedridden, with friends he had made who were also tourists, bringing him food and water to stay alive. After three weeks of this, Scott was forced to get moving and continue his travel because his visa was running out and he needed at least three more weeks to reach the eastern border and cross into Hong Kong. The first several days of travel were very tough for Scott, but he slowly regained his strength and made it to Hong Kong with almost no money left. He stayed with several other tourists he had met in eastern China who were traveling along a similar route. After a couple weeks in Hong Kong, he ran out of money and decided it was time to go home. At that point, the book ends rather abruptly, with no analysis or lessons that Scott learned from his journey. So now, I will take on Scott's role to make up for the shortcomings of the end of this book. I will be highlighting the mechanical issues he he had, but summarizing the main themes of the story as well. From the very beginning of the book, Scott experiences mechanical difficulties. At the beginning of his journey, the main issue he faces is just learning how to work on his bike and even how to determine what is causing the issues he has. Throughout the story, he progresses from being a complete novice in bike mechanics to being an expert, able to improvise solutions on the fly with limited materials. Throughout his journey, random passersby and other riders give Scott 
invaluable aid, parts, and knowledge that allow him to complete his trip. One of the first examples of this is before he has even begun his journey. He's walking around to different bike shops trying to figure out how much things will cost for his trip, and one of the mechanics offers to teach him how to work on a bike. Scott accepts, and he quickly becomes adept at basic bicycle mechanics. This includes truing a wheel, fixing a flat tire, fixing a broken chain, stuff like that. Once Scott's trip has begun in earnest, and he has made it through Norway and down into England, his bike needed quite a bit of work. So when he made it to London, he went to a bike shop, and they actually helped him for free, refusing to let him pay for their services. Of course, he didn't get the parts for free, but they were so intrigued by his journey and inspired by him that they just did all the work for free. From my experiences working at bike shops, uh, the shop will often do this. If someone comes in and say they don't necessarily have the means to pay for a bike work, but they really need something done, or their bike is their main source of transportation, we'll often barter with them, figure out how they can pay us, or in some cases, just do the labor for free. Throughout his ride, anytime he encounters another cyclist, they share stories and bicycle parts if needed. One example of this is when he's in Pakistan, and his rear wheel has a bunch of broken spokes in it. He searches all over the town he's in and can't find any. So when he goes to the next town that has an international airport in it, he camps out hoping to see a Western tourist with a bicycle come through who's going home and ask if he can buy some spokes from their rear wheel from them. To his luck, there's actually two mountain bikers who are on their way back to England and they give him all of the spare spokes they have as well as a couple extra tires. Scott again offers to pay them, but they refuse just because they're so inspired by what Scott's doing. I think this is one of the main takeaways from this story. If you're friendly and are doing something really cool, people will oftentimes go out of their way to help you. Scott remarks again and again in the book how reliant he was on just random strangers to help him. When he's going through China and he's crossing this desert where there's hundreds of kilometers in between each town and there's no way he can carry enough water for himself, truck drivers who drive by would just literally give him like three liters of water at a time. Like the truck driver's whole reserve with no concern for themselves, although they were in a truck, so they're, they're going to face a lot better with no water than Scott would on a bike. But they give him all their water, and he, that's how he was able to make it from town to town across these 100-kilometer distances with just exposure in the desert. All right, that's it for this episode. Please tune in next time for my conversation with Derek Pansy about how understanding mechanical systems can help you approach them creatively.